If you can, turn to Psalm 45. Some of you have read Psalm 45 many times, and it's very special to you, so you're extremely excited about a text from this chapter. This chapter, Psalm 45, is called the Song of Love. (laughs) Some people say to me sometimes, how come you always talk about the same thing in different ways? Well, to be honest, I can't speak of him in a way that is contrary to the way that he presented himself to me. So as he is, so we speak. What he shows, he gives. So if he shows something to you, he is giving that to you. And we can only give what we've received. So it's not my fault, it's his. Because all he shows me is love upon love and kiss upon kiss. Tenderness upon tenderness and gentleness upon gentleness. He is a matchless lover. How can we give our hearts to anything else when he has taken them with him? We can only give our hearts to other things if we haven't given them to him. Our affections are divided in exact proportion to the lack of giving ourselves over to his love. So I'm going to talk to you from Psalm 45. I have three points. They are number one, the king's beauty. Number two, the response of the bride to that beauty. And number three, the result of that beauty. But before I jump into this, can I just talk to you with an open heart for a second? Now, I'm still processing through this in my own heart. But I want to share it with you because I feel like there's something in it for you because it was rising in my heart in prayer this morning. There's these certain phrases in the scriptures, and they are called hard sayings. There's these certain things Jesus has said, and we, in the church and even in theology, we have grabbed them and we have brought them into this category of harsh statements or suffering or, you know, the hard sayings, if you will. One of them would be, count the cost. Another one would be, take up your cross and follow me. And we grab these statements and we put them into, oh, these are the harder things. These are the things that are not so lovey. And for years, I would hear people speak of these things like count the cost or pick up your cross. And the way they speak of it, the emphasis is so much upon how difficult things are going to be that it just kind of puts a weight upon everybody and everybody feels so discouraged and wonders if they'll ever be able to do it. And it would bother me so much because when Jesus would come with shining splendor, shimmering, shining with glory into my room, all of those weights were lifted off of me. And so I would look at him who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And then I would try to reconcile the, quote, hard sayings with these wonderful, beautiful words that are unlike anything that any man has been able to utter. And I would say to the Lord, Lord, will you show me what's going on here? How do I put these things together? And the Lord spoke to me clear as day one day when I was just meditating upon him. You know, when I say meditating upon him, we just let our hearts go up and we just hold our hearts on him. And here we find everything we could ever have wanted. We find that our prayers have vanished and we find him to be everything we ever needed. And we're freed from the need to have anything else as our hearts just are held upon him. While I was doing this, the Lord gave me some type of a seeing in my mind. How many of you have ever had something like this while you're praying? You just start seeing something. Well, I saw the Lord and his disciples. They were all kind of dirty and there was sheep walking around and Jesus is sitting and he looks at them and it's, I'm able to see a scene in which these words were uttered for the first time. And there he is. He opens his mouth. The disciples are looking at each other. He's about to speak. What is he going to say? And he looks at them and he says, if any man wants to come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. Or count the costs. And it hit me like a ton of bricks <laughs> that the emphasis that we should see in these statements is the mouth that they're coming out of. It is him who's saying these things. It is Jesus, the glorious bridegroom who loves you with everything on the inside of himself, who gives himself over for you. He's the one saying these things, which shows me something. When he says statements like this, it's not even so much about what he's saying, it's what he's revealing or what he's exposing. And what that is, is this. How valuable am I to you? When he says, count the cost, he's saying, look at all the stuff that you could lose. But on one side, that's the stuff you could lose that could possibly go wrong. But on this side is me. And if you put anything on the scales next to the perfect, glorious God man, Jesus always tips the scales. So when Jesus says things like count the cost, what he's really saying is how much value do you have for me? Do you value me over the things that could go wrong or the things that you could lose? Am I more valuable to you than the stuff that could happen? And when he says, pick up your cross and follow me with such tenderness and the, the sweetness of his voice and the love upon loves upon loves upon, what he's saying is, am I more valuable to you than you are to yourself? That's what he's asking. He's, he's putting things right before you and he's saying in essence, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than yourself? How much love do you have for me? That's the essence of what he's saying. Oh, I'll put it in, in, a, in a story just to, to help understand, help you understand what I'm saying. Imagine a guy and a girl comes walking into the service and he sees her and says, oh my goodness, I'm going to talk to that girl. He goes over and he says, 
I was stunned at the sight of you. I'd give anything to take you somewhere. And she says, okay. They go out, they start spending their time together. Then they start spending all their time together and they fall so head over heels in love with one another. And one afternoon they have a picnic in an open field and they lay side by side, looking up at the clouds and she turns to him and he turns to her and he says to her, you know what? I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? And she looks at him and says, you know, if you ask me to marry you, that means you're saying goodbye to all the other girls. And he looks at her and he says, that's exactly what I want. I only want you forever. That's marriage. And you know what? That's what Jesus is saying when he says, if any man wants to live his life with me, then he's got to say goodbye to all their loves. <laughs> what he's saying is the cost is you're not going to be able to seek out your own pleasure. You're going to have to find all of that in me now. So what he's saying in essence, isn't any hard saying at all. All he's saying is, will you marry me? Will you lose all of that to find everything in me? That's the essence of it. And it takes the weight of performance and striving and the, the twisting and turning and tooth pulling of this religious mentality out. And it gives to you a vision of a beautiful lover who says, will you marry me and let me be all to thee? Because none can be what I can be. Give ears to hear and eyes to see. Thrill your soul with ecstasy. Fill your heart with joy and peace make internal wars to cease, lift you above life's mysteries and bring you into my victories, love you now and endlessly and marry you eternally. <laughs> Psalm 45, he opens this song of love. A little theological note here. This psalm is called the germ of Song of Solomon, G-E-R-M, the very beginning of what Solomon's thoughts could ever have come from. Charles Spurgeon said, some theologians see in this the marriage of Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter. And then he says, they're short-sighted. He says, some people read this and they see Solomon and Christ. And he says, they're cross-eyed. Then he says, but those with pure sight see the heavenly bridegroom loving his bride. Psalm 45 verse one, he says, my heart, first two words already got me. My heart. You know what the heart represents? The heart is the seat of love. You know, in Deuteronomy, God shows us this when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's the heart that holds love. It's the heart that lets love out. Love is a heart issue. The heart is the love issue. When we look at the heart, we look at the seat of a man's affections and love. Some people have called it the immaterial center of your being. And he says, my heart, the immaterial center of my being and the seat of my love and my affections is overflowing, he says. My heart overflows. The word overflows shows us that his heart isn't just fixed. It is fixed, but it's not just fixed. And his heart isn't just fixed 
and filled. It is fixed and filled. It is fixed, filled, and flowing over. This is a kind of emotional eruption that he's having. This writer is saying, my emotions are bursting out and over. I'm fixed upon him, I'm filled with him, and I'm flowing over with love for him. Some people in Christianity today shoot their arrows at feelings. But these first four words destroy everything that they're trying to build. Listen, Jesus is full of love for you. He is head over heels for you. He has died for you. And in that, he steals your love again and again. The more you look at the gospel, the more you fall in love with Jesus. The less you look at the gospel, the more distant you get from love for Jesus. My heart, he says, overflows. Look at this, with a good theme. In other words, he's got a subject at hand and whatever this subject is, that's what's causing the overflow of affectionate love and desire. The eruption is coming from somewhere, he's saying. And he says, my heart overflows with a good theme. Quote, I address my verses to the king. That's his subject matter, is the king himself. Not a prince, not some governor. He goes right to the highest place where there's none higher. I address my verses to him who is the king of all. My heart overflows. And that love overflowing is this. Jesus, he has caused my heart to overflow. The next thing he says here is, and I love this, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. What what a perfect way of saying a a, a, a phrase of of, of words. I remember C.S. Lewis said, isn't it funny how the perfect string of words can tickle your soul like music? And that's what I think this is. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. In other words, love makes poets of us all. When you fall in love with Jesus, as you all have experienced, those of you who have fallen in love head over heels with Jesus and he has stolen your heart away and ran away to heaven with it, you know that when you're alone with him and you're stuck in sweetness with him and you start writing these things like, oh Lord, how I love you, my heart is bursting over with love. You satisfy my soul, Lord God. You know these types of things that, you, that come out of your heart. When you start saying things like, I love you, Lord, you make me strong. You are a bedrock under my feet, the castle in which I live. Love makes poets of us all. Now he goes into his poetry. Look at this next statement. You, O king, are fairer than the sons of men. The sons of men is a term that has to do with humanity. It doesn't just mean he's only fairer than the sons of men. It means he's fairer than humanity. That's what sons of men means. It means humanity, not just present, that's living when he's writing this. He's talking about the sons of men that have lived before him and the sons of men that will come after him. The sons of men is humanity as a catch-all. You are fairer than all of humanity. Take every glorious person, every good person, every kind person, every noble person, every righteous person that has ever lived from Adam all the way to the end of time. You 
pile them all together and they still pale in comparison to the one who's fairer than the sons of men. Jesus is greater than all. He trumps all of them. He's outstanding among 10,000. And 10,000, again, is another way of saying all. He is greater than every single one of them. You say, Eric, but what's the point of even saying you're fairer than the sons of men? Well, let me just put it to you like this. When Jesus, who is fairer than the sons of men, comes in, he has this ability to make everybody else disappear. You can't see anybody else when he comes in. That's the kind of symmetrical beauty Jesus has in his person and his work, his character, his nature, the excellencies of who he is and how he lives his life and how he feels for you and how he governs the universe. It is so perfect and so resplendent with glory that he steps in and his character shining out of him like light beams causes you not to be able to see anybody else anymore. Eric, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say, don't look for in the sons of men what can only be found in the son of man. If if your heart is looking to find peace or joy based upon how people treat you or how people make you feel, then your eyes are on the sons of men and not the son of man. Because if your eyes are put upon the son of man, then all the sons of men and all that they can do disappears. Say, Eric, is that possible? Absolutely. Positively. Yes, it is. When he has our hearts. The next thing it says here is grace is poured on his lips. Isn't that an incredible statement? It doesn't say it's on, it's smeared on his lips like lip balm. Grace isn't just dripped on his lips. It says grace is poured on his lips. And this word poured actually has to do with the emptying of the contents. In other words, there is no grace outside of his lips. All of grace that will ever be comes from the lips of this one who is fairer than the son of man. What's the, what's the significance of this? It means that you need kisses. It means that he revives your soul with the kisses of God. It means that when Jesus kisses you, he kisses your fears away, your tears away. It means when Jesus comes in, the impartation of grace is the sweet touch of the spirit upon the soul. God longs to give to you his intimate love repeatedly. Remember the song, the song of Solomon says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I don't want just one kiss. I have been kissed and now I want more kisses. Bill Johnson once said, people say that I want more quality over quantity. And then he says, but when you get the quality, you want more quantity of the quality. And isn't that the truth? Once you get a kiss from the Lord, you begin to say, oh, Lord, give me the kisses of your mouth. I was lost before your kiss, and now I'm lost without kisses. Lord, kiss me back to life. Kiss my heart back to life. You say, Eric, is Jesus actually kissing you? No, it has to do with the touch of grace upon your soul. The first act of the kiss of God upon you is your salvation. That's the first time grace touched you. That's the first kiss. What's the second kiss? Well, when the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead touches your soul, that's the second kiss. And what's the repeated kisses? It's continual fillings of the spirit again and again and again and again. Bernard of Clairvaux said the kisses of God are when his word 
touches your soul. The word of God coming into you like kisses. So I'll move on to the response of the bride. You can see it in verse 10. After you see this glorious revelation of him who's fairer than the sons of men and causing eruptions of love on the inside and he who has all of grace upon his lips and and he make empowers you and quickens you by his sweet kiss once you realize this there's a way to respond and it is this verse 10 listen give attention and incline your ear that's a threefold attention listen give attention and incline your ear Many times in the scriptures, there is something said twice for emphasis, but this is thrice. (laughs) It's a, it's a, it's a deep and wholehearted, full solical connection. It is all that I am and all that I have attentive to you. The Proverbs tell us, my son, give me your attention that you may gain understanding, which means if you don't give attention, there's no understanding for you. But if you give attention, understanding can pass into you. And this is a threefold attention. That's the kind of response that his beauty deserves. The beauty and majesty and splendor of this son of man deserves a threefold kind of attention. Uh, Not only am I going to just quiet my mouth and listen, not only am I going to set my mind upon you, but I'm going to put the entirety of my being upon you in fullness. I'm going to give you every ounce of attention that I have. I said this last night, but I'll say it again because it fits really good here. There's a story of a little boy and he's trying to get away from his shadow and he's running here and he's running there and he's twisting and he's moving his arms. He's trying to kick the shadow away. Every movement he does, all the sweat, all the striving, all the, 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 the things he can come up with in his mind to try to get away from his shadow, and they don't work. So when his father recognizes what he's trying to do, he says, he says, you're trying to get away from your shadow? And the boy says, yeah. So the father grabs the boy and he turns him towards the sun in the sky. And in a moment, the boy recognizes my shadow. It's completely disappeared. It's gone. I can't see it anymore. How'd you do that, dad? And the dad says, all you have to do is turn towards the sun and he'll cast the shadow behind you. And I want to say to you, some of you are trying so hard to get away from sin. You're twisting and fighting and struggling and all of this. You're, or you're, you're trying to get away from a bitterness that you have and you're turning and you're, you're trying to push it away or you're trying to figure out a way to get away from unforgiveness or depression or some kind of something that you just can't shake off of you. I'm telling you, if you will give threefold attention to the beauty and majesty of the resplendent son of God, he'll cast behind you this, like a shadow, the doubt, fear, unbelief, depression, all these things that are, that are literally overtaking you and overpowering you and overwhelming you will be thrown behind you. That's the kind of attention that Jesus deserves. But look at this. He goes on even further. He says, give me all your attention. And then the next words are forget your people and your father's house. Do Do you know what that means? That's what we talked about at the very beginning. That's will you marry me? When a woman in this day is giving herself over to a husband or takes a husband, she leaves her father now. 
The scripture tells us a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Literally, the man, when he comes into marry a woman, he takes her away from the provisions she once knew, the satisfactions and life that she once knew. All that she got from her father and her people, he now removes her from them, and now she is to find all of those things she found in them in him, trusting him for them and receiving all of that from him now. That's marriage. And so when Jesus says, give me threefold attention and turn your back on the ways of your father, Adam. Turn your back on what you knew to be your old life or the things that were plaguing you before in the past. Turn away from them and now find satisfaction and fulfillment completely in me. That's the essence of the response that his beauty deserves. To see the glory and splendor of Jesus Christ it melts away your ability to resist him. The more you look at him, the more he casts that shadow behind you, and the more that you see how valuable he is, you say, oh Lord, you name it, I'll do it, because in you, I have everything. If you give me him and take away everything, I have everything. But if you give me everything and take away him, I have nothing. That's the essence of this love that we have, that we see here in Psalm 45 with the bride. Now I want to show you the, res- the, the results of looking at his beauty. I've already touched on it with the shadow story. But there's something in this chapter that is absolutely incredible. We see a picture of a violent lover. The king is a lover, yes, but he shows a violent side to himself. And for the sake of time, you can read it later. But it, there's this image of the king riding on his horse victoriously. And then the scripture says that his right hand pulls back an arrow and he shoots the arrow into the heart of the king's enemies and they, quote, fall underneath him while he's riding his horse. Do you see the image? This is a lover who is so jealous for all of your attention, so jealous for all of your affection, so jealous for all of your love that he shoots arrows into any and everything that gets between you and him. And then he runs them over with his horse. (laughs) You say, Eric, what is he running over? Well, it says he rides forth victoriously for the cause of, listen to this, for the cause of righteousness truth and meekness which shows me something what he's shooting the arrow at is the opposite of these things because he rides forward in this kind of splendor destroying everything opposite to him the king's enemies and that would be pride instead of meekness that would be unrighteousness instead of righteousness and that would be lies instead of truth so what your lover what your lover who loves you so much does as he rides on in the victory of Calvary, shooting forth arrows made from the cross into the heart of every lie that comes into your ears, shoots into the heart of every bit of unrighteousness trying to rise up on the inside of you, and he shoots deep into the heart of pride. He kills it. (laughs) That's incredible to me. Is that incredible to you? This is our Christ. This is the heavenly Solomon, the glorious bridegroom who loves you so much. So you say, Eric, what, how do I get him to shoot these arrows? 
I got lies buzzing around me like crazy. I've got unrighteousness rising up in me constantly. I've got pride that I keep seeing everywhere in my own heart and my dealing with my wife and people around me and and friends and contention here, contention there. How do I get Jesus to shoot these arrows? Well, it says that he rides forth in his splendor and his majesty. Splendor is, the word splendor means radiant beauty. And majesty means excellence, his his perfect character. So my answer to you is this. This is how you get Jesus to shoot these arrows. The arrows are himself. The arrows are his own beauty. The arrows are his own excellencies. In other words, turn all of your attention to the splendor and majesty of who he is. And that in and of itself is the release of the arrow to destroy the lies. You say, Eric, but I need you to be more practical. Okay, you've been having thoughts of God not loving you. Let's just say that. It's a lie. So when you look at the scriptures and you see God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You read that and it shoots the arrow right into the heart of any thought at all that God doesn't love you. Because it says, God so loved the world. You say, oh, I just can't get away from this sin. This sin is, it has me in a bind. I'm under the snare of it. So you turn over to Revelation chapter one, verse five, and you see to him who loves us and released us from the hold of our sins. Then you say, oh, it's a lie. You're looking into the text and seeing the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ in the word of God. I'm telling you, you open up this book and this book is a window to the face of Jesus Christ. You know, if you read this book in the presence of the spirit, the outer shell of it will be cracked and the living voice will come out. This book is the only book that demands the author be present when it's read. (laughs) And as, and as you, uh, As you take this book open and you're in the presence of the spirit by giving all your attention to Christ and you open up this book, you you begin to wonder, am I looking at the book or is the book looking at me? You feel like the pages are breathing, praise God. Most people's bondage is a dusty Bible. People are searching here and there for some type of a program to deliver them. Listen to me. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is all that you need right here in the presence of the Spirit, under the anointing and power of the Spirit, which is accessed in one way, submission to Jesus. (laughs) Then you find all that you need right there. So, how many of you have recognized that there's a music inside of him Inside of him, there's a music that sets in motion a melody in your own soul. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end right here if the band can come back up, but I want to give you a little key. And this is going to sound like it's not very important, but the scripture tells us that we are not to be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be being continually filled with the spirit. And then it says dot, dot, dot. In other words, continuation, dot, dot, dot. Making melody in your heart unto God. That's love songs all day. 
People are like, how do I live full of the Spirit? You just keep a melody of love going up unto him. Oh, how I love you. Oh, how I love you. I remember when I was working construction, I would be digging ditches all day long and I'd be so tired and so worn out in the hot Florida sun with humidity just breaking through your skin. Feel like I'm going to pass out. We still got 3,000 feet left to dig. I'm making like $88 a day and I'm digging and I have a family at home just digging. Frustrated, tired, but in one moment, if I just opened up my heart, and began to just let a melody of love come up and remember his precious gospel. <laughs> remember the glorious son of God, him who shines like the sun and loves me so. The one who went down into the depths for me. I began to worship the Lord and in one moment, though nothing changed, everything was different. You know, the psalmist, sorry, Song of Solomon chapter five, the bride gives a description of the bridegroom and his beauty. The very first thing that he, she says about him is very intriguing, actually. It says in Song of Solomon 5, verse 10, that my beloved is dazzling and ruddy. So the first thing that she tries to explain to those who are asking her, what is so special about your beloved? What makes him so beautiful is she says he's dazzling and ruddy. I look at this and I think to myself, what in the world is she even saying? And I look at the word dazzling and check this out. The word dazzling is bright white. That has to do with the fact he has no imperfections. He has perfect sinlessness. He is light unapproachable. He is perfection to the nth degree. But then the ruddy bothered me. So I looked up the root of the word ruddy and it means blood red. Why is he so beautiful? Well, he's brightness extreme and a bleeding dream. What makes him so beautiful? Well, he, he is resplendent with majesty and he drips with blood for me. <laughs> He's in the heights of heaven with God who dwells in light unapproachable. Yet then, then he falls down because of the weight of his love. It drops him to the earth and then he goes to the lowest point and he dies for humanity. He's covered both his bases. No one's went higher, none have went lower. This is Jesus Christ the Son. Why is he so beautiful? So you, you think of this and, and, and he steals your affections. He steals your mind. He, he steals your heart and everything on the inside of you begins to, to throb and say, oh, how I love him. There's not one like him. He makes my heart overflow and your tongue becomes the pen of a ready writer and you begin to say things like, you're fairer, you're fairer, Lord. You're fairer than the sons of men. You're fairer than the sons of men. So I beseech you, I guess, tonight by the wounds of the Redeemer and by your soon appearance before him to lose no more time and just turn away from the failure to recognize this conquering act, all conquering act by looking unto Jesus. At the end of Leonard Ravenhill's life, they asked him, how did you walk so faithfully with God all these years? His answer was looking unto Jesus. I love the second part of that. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, which means he starts the thing and he brings the thing all the way to completion. He is able to present you blameless and faultless before God. It is only him. Praise God. Can I just, get, can I just drop one more gospel note just real quick and then we'll be done? 
Listen closely to this next statement. If Christianity is merely following the commandments of Jesus, then Jesus is not a savior because by following his commandments, we've effectually saved ourselves. So what are you saying, Eric? I'm saying there is only one way to salvation and it's complete and total abandoned faith into Jesus Christ and his person and his work. This is the only way to be saved. You cannot muster it up. You cannot live it up. You can't learn it up. You can't fight it up. The only way to be saved is to cast yourself upon the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Some people stiff arm God by breaking all the rules. Other people stiff arm God by keeping all the rules. The problem is neither one of these are faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Eric, what am I supposed to do? Should I just like not obey the commandments of Jesus? No, I'm trying to tell you the, the commandments of Jesus now after faith are written on the inside and God causes you to walk in his ways. That's real, genuine Christianity where his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he doesn't put weights upon you. He carries you. There's a gospel that is actual good news and sometimes we forget it, but it's only found in a threefold attention to the resplendent, glorious son of God that says, my heart overflows and I address my verses to the king. You are fairer than the sons of men, Jesus. I I worship you. Mm, I praise you. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto you, Jesus. Jesus.